Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, today we are saying goodbye for Christmas. Um, It has been an absolutely incredible year for Vintage Podcast this year. Uh, We have had one of the most star-studded years, I think, for authors. Um, So do make sure you go back and listen to old episodes and relax over the holidays. We've had Sarah Jessica Parker, we've had Irvin Welsh, Daisy Johnson, Rachel Kushner, Meg Willitzer, Carmen Khalil, who was the editor for Angela Carter. We've had Kristen Rupenian of the famous short story Cat Person in conversation with Dolly Alderton. Uh, we've had Ben Rhodes, Jen Campbell, Mosi Lit, Helena Kennedy. It's been a mad year, guys. So you've got plenty to be absorbing while we're gone. Uh, when we're back in 2019, we are kicking off with some incredible bookish chat. Um, so do stay tuned for our January episodes. Um, but today, we're going to be talking nutters. The best of which, perhaps, is Tommy Nutter. Heard of him? Well, if you haven't, you should have. He's dressed everybody, from Bianca Jagger to the Beatles. We have got his incredible biographer, Lance Richardson, uh, who wrote The House of Nutter, the rebel tailor of Savile Row. Uh, he is in conversation, bringing us back to the real swinging glamour years of Savile Row in London. He discusses the really unique relationship Tommy had to the fashion world, how he got into it. Uh, It's absolutely incredible. Um, Did you know that Tommy Nutter, for instance, introduced the world to the tuxedo? He was one of the first people to start really intentionally provoking the press. And Lance talks uh, really interestingly about the kind of intersection between Tommy's queerness and the social mobility around that time that was really quite special. Um, So yeah, I'm going to leave you to listen to Lance now to talk about Tommy, Uh, but it's a really special story and I do recommend you picking up House of Nutter if you're looking for something to read over the holidays that's engrossing. If you're into the kind of secret history, glamorous kind of non-fiction, it's really really something for you. Um, So I'm going to leave you with that interview. Let's go. Hello, I'm Anna Murphy, fashion director of The Times, and I'm here to talk to Lance Richardson, who's published a wonderful book called House of Nutter, The Rebel Tailor of Savile Row. Um, Firstly, Lance, I want you to tell us a little bit about who Tommy Nutter is and why he matters. I think a lot of us know the name. We may know that he did suits. We may not know much more than that. Tell us a little bit about why he's important. So Tommy Nutter came along uh, in 1969. He opened his shop on Savile Row on Valentine's Day. Uh, And he came along at a particularly interesting moment in uh, fashion history. Uh, On Savile Row, before Tommy, you had had uh, quite prosaic but exquisitely made suits. Um, They would be where you would go to get sort of, you know, very understated men's business suit. Uh, If you wanted something more extreme, uh, you would not be able to get it there, and you would probably have to go somewhere like the Kings Road or Carnaby Street, and then it would be less well-made. And uh, what Tommy did is is he uh, was quite young at the time. He was 26 when he opened his store, and he combined the innovation and the creativity that was appearing in Soho and in in young people with the uh, exquisite... Uh, craftsmanship of Savile Row and, and really, um, you know, was one of the first menswear designers, I think, uh, and and set the scene uh, um, for a lot of people who have come after him and sort of built on the sorts of things he was doing. And so essentially his clothes were expensive, but they were targeting a new kind of man who was had the money to spend. 
Yeah, I think that they were. He he recognized uh, a hole in the market, and he he saw that there were people who had money to spend. Uh, and who wanted sort of these interesting clothes, but wanted them at a higher level of quality and craftsmanship that then was actually available at the moment. Describe a typical, if there is such a thing as a typical Tommy Nutter suit, or give me a couple of examples of the mm. kind of things we're, we're talking at, talking about. Right. So the first, the first uh, Tommy Nutter look, the the one that made him quite famous, and, and Edward Sexton, who was the the man who who cut the suits. Um, he started with a hacking jacket. Edward started with a hacking jacket, which is quite a long jacket that would originally meant to be used when you were riding a horse. So it was sort of the skirt would flare out. And they took this look and they uh, basically exaggerated it and they stretched out the lapels to the point where they touched the sleeve head. Um, and they were sort of almost like banana leaf size lapels. Uh, and they, they sort of perked up the shoulders and made them sort of very strong. Um, and then they elongated the the jacket, uh, so you got this almost like butterfly wing look, where it was sort of very balanced and very elegant. Uh, and they paired that with with very tight fitting trousers that were so tight fitting you couldn't actually have pockets in them because you couldn't get your hands in them. He did like a tight fitting pair of trousers, didn't he? He, he did. He I didn't. was I amused. Can... One of the wonderful pictures in your book is of Mick Jagger wearing a, a nutter suit on his wedding day. And those were some very tight fitting trousers, can I just say? They were. They, they revealed everything. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't know that there's many people who could have worn them quite as well as Mick Jagger did. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And, and, you know, as they went on a little bit in their... Um, their process, he, he sort of actually changed the look a little bit and they, they started experimenting with the opposite, which was Oxford bags, which are these incredibly capacious pants where, you know, the, the cuff can be so wide it actually swallows up the shoe. Um, so it did evolve over time, but the, the original look that, that was sort of very famous was this, um, you know, almost Teddy Boy-esque uh, coat. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And so, in a way, it was exaggeration, wasn't it? Whether the trousers were very tight or the trousers were very large or the shoulders were very broad, it it was a kind of slightly cartoonish. Bozo take. the clown. Yes. 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 He was somebody. Somebody described the look as you know aristocratic mixed with Bozo the clown. I think that was pretty accurate. Another part of the Nutter equation was his ability to wrangle a celebrity, wasn't it? I mean, Mick Jagger was one person who who famously wore his suits. Mm. Talk me through some of his other his other well known uh, patrons. Right, so he had this amazing capacity to charm people. He was very charismatic, and um, you know some of his original backing for the the shop came from Cilla Black and from Peter Brown, who was um, Brian Epstein's assistant before Brian died, uh, and then continued to work with the Beatles at at Apple Corps. So he was associating with with some extraordinary rock people even before he actually opened his shop. And then when he opened his shop, um, they became the logical clientele. So if you watch Let It Be, that film um, with the very famous sequence where the, the Beatles are playing on the rooftop at the end and the police sort of barge in to Apple Corps and tell them to, to shut it down, you can see uh, the man who opens the door to the police is actually wearing a nutter frock coat. <laughs> so he had sort of these advertisements placed strategically in these these sorts of places so that, that you know, Robert Stigwood, et cetera, would walk through and actually kind of get a walking advertisement. Um, so the Beatles were really the first major clients. And if you're going to go big, you can't get much bigger than the Beatles when it comes to uh, celebrity endorsements. 
um, and obviously he's quite famous for having dressed three of the four Beatles on the album at the album cover of Abbey Road, but that wasn't actually planned. They were just wearing the clothes they happened to like at the time, wow. and they all just That's impressive. to like Tommy Nutter. They wore yeah. what sort of made them happy at that moment, I suppose, and it was him. Um, and then a little later, sort of a few years later, it became Elton John when Elton John was still quite early in his career, but hugely famous already. Um, and Elton John became something of a muse throughout his entire career. And given them Elton John's, how should we put it, dedicated shopping habits, like he was a rather good client to have, wasn't he? Because uh, your accounts of some of his his expenditure was, is, is quite remarkable. Um, if, if, talk me through some of his his ordering. Well, so I I spoke to to John Reed, who was um, Elton's manager for many years, and John said that they would go in and, you know, Tommy would send out for champagne, and uh, they would spend half the day there getting completely blotto and and ordering suits, and and that um, John would would leave with you know two or three, and Elton would sort of buy twenty, and uh, in, in every color because he could. Yeah. And I think, you know, Tommy was quite happy to oblige yes. any whim that he may have had. No and wonder he bought the champagne. Exactly. I mean, I mean it does well. just, reading the story, it does just sound that the most swinging, mm-hmm. swinging London imaginable. I mean, all this sort of ordering champagne and right. just seems like an endless kind of party in which it was, suits were sort of almost accidentally produced. But of course, the, the technical side was, was a big part of it, wasn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. these were Savile Row suits. Just looking at the the kind of the history of Savile Row tailoring, I'm, I'm really interested in when you talk about the cutter. Um, so the cutter is the person, as the name suggests, actually makes the suit. Um, talk me through the sort of science of cutting, because it, because it is a science, isn't it? They actually take longer to train than brain surgeons, you say, you say at one point. Well, that's that's what that's their claim. That <laughs> the, the thing they like to say is, though, um, you know, it's it's that's the stamp of. Um, authority that they have thrown around in the past. Um, absolutely, I mean it's this incredibly old tradition that has built up its customs and its its sort of um, quirks and, and processes over time. And uh, you know, it's it's the process of getting. I think people don't necessarily understand what makes a Savile Row suit so special and so unusual, and and so different to something like a ready to wear suit or off the rack. Um, and it's it's because of the craftsmanship. It's because of the you know Edward Sexton at one point said to me the relationship in the garment because everything is hand done uh, and it takes you know sometimes up to eighty to hundred hours to make just one suit so uh, in terms of of the process and the science of it you it, it, the geometry is incredibly complicated and uh, has to be absorbed to the point where it's intuitive if they're to become actually any good. And if they're really good, they can do a lot of it just freehand, which when you actually watch them do it, it's amazing because I can't even draw a circle without kind of screwing it up. So when you say freehand, are they... Because I I know you talk in the book about rock of eye. Yes. So is that when you, if I understand correctly, you don't actually need to... You can look at a body Mm -hmm. and determine... How to how to dress it, sort of thing. Well, you would look at the measurements that you would take in the yeah. in the the actual sort of initial uh, measuring uh, part of the the sequence, uh, and then you could look at that, and you would be able to sketch uh, the basic shape of the jacket. Um, I think pants are a little more complicated in terms of. I, I don't think that they would do that freehand. Yeah. Um, but certainly, sort of the lapels and the shape of it, and sort of the the flow of it. If, if you're a particularly excellent cutter, you would be able to do that freehand, which is the rock of eye method. 
And having been lucky enough to have one suit made to measure myself, one of the things I've really struck about, which I think one just doesn't realise, is the trompe l'oeil of, of it. You mm-hmm, can actually mm-hmm. change the way a body looks Absolutely. by really apparently quite minor mm-hmm. alterations. So mm-hmm. for those men to go to, to Savile Row, they're, they're really accessing every trick in the trade, aren't they? Well, I think that's the magic of a Savile Row suit is that uh, so you go in and no matter what your body shape is, they will make you look better. They will mm. fix any imperfection that you have or as much as you know possible um, by, by doing things like raising your shoulder slightly or by concealing um, a paunch if you have one or you know, a bit of a hunchback or something. And, and the famous example is Cary Grant, who you, know, you think of Cary Grant and you think of this incredibly well-dressed, very put-together person. And in fact, he uh, kind of had a bit of a strange body shape. And it was the suits that kind of corrected that um, but did it in a way that the corrections became invisible. It's and the suits that turned Archibald Leach into oh, Cary Grant. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's, it's what uh, you know, I would argue and a lot of people have argued. Um, but beyond that, beyond this, this process of, of making somebody perfect, doing it in a way that uh, the, the artifice is invisible and becomes just sort of seemingly effortless. So you, know, you are not being corrected, you just are perfect and mm. you just happen to be wearing mm. a suit. It's that sort of that one step further. That's the magic of a Savile Row suit that I just don't think you get when you go and buy a suit off the rack, which is not made for your body originally. We'll talk more about what Tommy Nutter did with, with suiting. But to mm. wind back a little bit further, I loved your your history of Savile Row and, and the degree to which there had been revolutions, although that's probably far too strong a word, before this this era in, in this, this the sort of 60s and 70s, you talk about um, two famous royal fops, if that's not too strong a word, Edward VII, and then uh, after that, his, in, his grandson, Edward VIII. So Edward VII, in the, in the, in the 19th century, he, he introduced a few innovations to the way that a well-dressed man dressed well, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he did. I mean, I think anything he introduced became a bit of a, um, a fad. He was sort of people would follow him around and sort of record, um, you know, every little innovation that he would do and then take it back to their clients. So he was he was a bit of a sartorial superstar, which is sort of a funny thing to think of when you think of the royals today being these sort of leaders of fashion. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Prince of Wales, um, before, you know, he became King Edward, um, was uh, hugely influential and... and did all sorts of things like you know it, today people you, you don't do the button up the the final button up on your waistcoat and that was him and he would sort of wear. Um, he introduced the tuxedo, I think you said. He did right, so that yeah, that's probably the most famous yeah, thing. That he yeah, yeah, which is pretty pretty impressive. And also, I think there was a rather amusing spinach-related incident, if I remember rightly. Right, so he, according to uh, historians, he was sitting at dinner. Um, eating dinner and he spilled some spinach down his his front and he was wearing white and instead of you know freaking out I think as as most people would given the expense and and the sort of you know um the damage something like this would do he proceeded to sort of push the spinach around and play with it and then and sort of laugh it off and and so it's just this amazing thing where for him clothes were incredibly serious to the point that he would travel with multiple trunks and multiple valets to look after it but it could also be sort of a fun silly game um, at the same time and um, I was interested to read that you know Edward VIII as he was briefly you know mm. followed in his grandfather's footsteps his love, mm. of, love of clothes but he was actually the first person to introduce zips in trousers which I would have assumed 
came much earlier than that. Well, it's the first royal to do that, I think. Oh, was he? Yeah. Okay, so they'd yeah. been more widespread, right. And um, and then just, just winding forward um, in the sort of decades before Nutter, um, there was this sort of so-called neo-Edwardian look, or as we as mm. we know it now, the, the teddy boy look. I mean, mm. that, again, was suit-based, but that was the beginning of something new, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was the beginning of, uh, I mean, it, not necessarily the cause of the be- uh, like the evolution of the, the modern teenager, but sort of a symptom of this new social class that was a- arriving at that time and very sort of aggressively independent. Uh, and, you know, the Teddy Boys took a style that Savile Row was pushing quite aggressively to a certain, you know, higher class as a way of, you know, maybe rejuvenating their importance. And they, they sort of took this style and they hijacked it and they, they combined it with the American zoot suit and um, it became quite uh, sort of revolutionary and, and upsetting to a lot of people uh, who, who had a stake in the game when it came to these sorts of clothes. Um, it's quite surprising, isn't it, that a suit... They, they reinvented the suit, as you say, but mm-hmm. it, it's surprising that a, a sort of countercultural movement should choose such a very, um, you know, accepted form of, of dress to subvert. You know, I think we think mm. of sort of rebels as wearing leather jackets and right. the sort of James Dean model, don't right. we? So it's an interesting one what they did. Why do you think that was? I think they were probably just taking the piss to some extent. Yeah. They were they were sort of watching these grandies wear these, these sorts of clothes and then saying, oh, no, if you can wear that, we can wear that too. I mean, that attitude, that yeah. sort of like... You know, refusal refusal to be deferential, I think, is is pretty symptomatic of what we would consider teenagers today. But back then, maybe quite staggering, yeah, um, and really interesting. And then to to combine that with other things like the certain the certain type of shoes that they wear, these brothel creeper shoes, and their sort of hairstyles, and um, it must have been really shocking to a lot of people who, uh, you know, had grown up and and lived through the war as adults to suddenly see these young people who was so unlike anything they had been themselves and maybe almost alien. I mean, this revolution in youth and relatedly in fashion, along with many other things, as you say, it came very soon after the war. Do, mm. you, do you think that the war played, played into that, that it was almost that sort of austerity and that repression of those war years that led to this, this new kind of craziness almost? Well, I mean, I, I suspect it had something to do with, I mean, yeah, you had austerity in the 50s, but then in the late 50s and the 60s, when, when this sort of thing started to really take off and you end up with the mods and people like that, you know, fortunes had started to change and there was disposable money and, and young people were working in ways that they hadn't necessarily worked before. So they had disposable incomes mm. and there was nothing to spend it on except themselves and their clothes and their records and... Um, you know, and those sorts of things. And at the same time, you also have uh, influences from America and from the continent that that previously maybe had been inaccessible, uh, far more sort of free-flowing, and jazz and Elvis and everyone like that. So Mm. it was just this, almost like someone had pushed their foot down on the accelerator and things had started to go really fast. I mean, it was also, I mean, Tommy Nutter is very much a, a sort of typical figure in, of the time in that also he's a working class mm. boy made good, mm-hmm. along with other famous working class boys of the time, Vidal Sassoon, Terence Stamp. Mm-hmm. And he's also a homosexual man who initially has to start off in the closet and mm-hmm. very much comes out of the closet, partly by way of filling other people's closets with mm-hmm. <laughs> such amazing <laughs> clothes. Um, was his 
um, how did his class and his sexuality play into his his professional progression? Do you think so this is for me one of the most fascinating things is is this this question of um, how he's being gay maybe helped him, and I think it's such an interesting idea because it's maybe goes against what you would assume. You would assume that it would be at that time. Uh, a massive setback to be something like you know a queer man in the early '60s before it was legal that that would be a bad thing, um, but you know talking to the people I spoke to and uh, uh, my own sort of I guess not that you know I'm I'm 34 years old it's my experience of being a gay man is very different to what they would have gone through but um, this sense that you know you you go to a gay club something like uh, you know the Rockingham which is where Tommy used to go. Um, and because these spaces were, to some extent, um, outside the social structure, because they weren't sanctioned, they were they were legal, you know, as long as people didn't touch each other and they sort of subscribed to these certain um, modes of behaviour, but they still weren't really okay. So you've got these spaces that that are sort of like almost sort of speakeasy type environments. Um, and there aren't that many of them, so everyone tends to go to the same ones. And, and that means that if you go to that space, regardless of the social class you're in, you're going to find yourself um, associating with people from a huge spectrum mm-hmm. of the social class. And Tommy used to find himself, uh, you know, alongside movie stars and alongside, um, you know, grenadier guards and people like that. Uh, and that, that's, that's quite unusual already and then I think if you find yourself associating with that outside the social structure you sort of have a a sense of mobility that I think you know straight people would not have found themselves exposed to Mm, that's very interesting and um and maybe you know as I talked to David who's Tommy's brother he certainly talks about this sense of like possibility that came out of these spaces and that anything really could happen uh, and a lot of their connections that really changed their lives were other gay men who who had you know come from all sorts of different class backgrounds, but were willing to to work with them or sort of communicate with them because they had this sort of connection that they would not have had if they were just you know heterosexual people. Mm, that's really fascinating. Um, again, like many like many creatives. Tommy Nutter was brilliant at being creative and possibly not so good at <laughs> running a business. Right. So eventually he, he did lose control of the business, didn't he? And then, and then he became a sort of gun to hire, uh, gun for hire, rather fabulous gun for hire. But mm-hmm. he, he worked for the, the, the house now known as Kilgore. One of the things that struck me is, again, this, this remarkable capacity for marketing that in a way very much predates his age. I mean, the the brilliant anecdote that uh, you know when um, Thatcher sent off her ships to the Falklands, he he actually started talking about the nautical look the being nautical in this look, season. Yeah. <laughs> um, and his little press release, which I don't have in front of me, is is amazing. It's this sort of like tongue in cheek, uh, you know, uh, take on on this sort of very sailor esque, um, you know, dress. Uh, he was he was very good at picking up on the sorts of things that would get him press attention and it becomes difficult at certain moments to know what was serious and what was not yes, like I don't I, I don't think that. he ever actually probably produced that as a as a an outfit that people would wear but he knew that if he kind of put it out there that he was going to do that that people would run stories about him yeah uh, and he was very conscious of the value of press in a way that 
you know, I think we today would understand completely because we're such a, you know, media saturated um, society now. But back then, certainly in Savile Row and that sort of that sort of world, they didn't understand it. And they kind of maybe thought it was a little vulgar to chase the media. So you have this man come along who is is being provocative t- deliberately as a way of drawing attention to uh, Kilgore French and Stanbury, which is where he, he did that and many other things that I think upset quite a few people there. You talk about... Um Tommy Nice's clothing being a, a manifestation of himself, arguably mm. more than mm. anyone else, is is that again linked in with his his sexuality? In that you know, as a gay man, you at that time he started to be able to express himself, and clothes were tools in a way that maybe for for more conventional members of society quotes unquote they mm. they sort of weren't it was it is it that sort of self engendering that made his clothes so expressive i think so i think he was he was also just somebody who you know like many artists just need to express himself through whatever medium he has in hand that he's capable of doing it in yeah. and i mean he didn't if you go right back to the beginning in 1960 when he first started on Savile Row picking up pins off the floor he didn't necessarily ever plan to be a tailor in that way he just kind of you know, hated the job that his parents had sort of funneled him into and desperately looked for a way out, and then this came along and he just jumped at it. And I think he sort of built on that and just came to see that as a way of his expressing himself mm-hmm. because that was what he was being trained in. And then, you know, if, if something had gone differently and Tommy Nutter had found himself as an architect or something, he may have been this crazy, expressive architect. Yeah. It was just this this sort of innate desire to express himself um, and to be as much himself as he could be and it just sort of happened to go through the clothes I think and, and be this perfect um, match of, of personality and, and um, medium You speak to a great cast of characters for the book um, what was your sense of what he was actually like I mean often big creative people are quite frankly a bit mm. of a nightmare to be mm. around or, or what both wonderful and a nightmare often at one and the same time. What was he like? It's really interesting. It depends who you speak to, but <clears throat> the general consensus is that he was uh, mostly wonderful. And, and I, I, I didn't really come across anyone who had anything particularly bad to say about him as a person. He was quite loved and, uh, you know, by all accounts, very charming, very dry, quite shy and sort of... It's it's surprising that he would be shy, but quite shy. I was going to say that I is know, surprising. I know, but yeah, everyone says that he was he would wilt if put in front of a massive crowd, and um, you know maybe the whole suits and everything. You know that that sense of performance and that that if he put on the suit and projected Tommy Nutter, the actual person behind it was, I think, quite shy. Yeah. Uh, but as a business person, complete rubbish, <laughs> complete rubbish. And you know, you watch again and again as he gets himself into these pretty amazing opportunities and then f- fails to exploit it because he doesn't quite know how to, or he just puts his emphasis in the wrong place. So, you know, so give me an example of that then. What? Um, what was his biggest business faux pas, would you say? Well, I think I think just sort of taking his eye off the bottom line and realising that if you want to be sustainable, yes, you need to be creative. You need to create these sort of very distinctive looks, but you have to do it in a way that, you know, the lights aren't going to be turned off because you've run out of money. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, his, his most famous store, Nutters of Savile Row, uh, continued on after him, but kind of like he left in 1976. He and Edward Sexton parted ways. Um, 
And it's very complicated why that happened. And it's not because there was one good guy and one bad guy. It was um, because Tommy was very creative and very difficult. Uh, and I think Edward, uh, you know, that was very challenging to work with. And they had had a very good run. And then maybe things financially started to go a bit belly up. And Tommy wasn't really willing to confront that and push too hard. And then, and then it sort of came to a head. Um, but even that, you know, it came to a head in a way that you would like to think any rational person would have an argument and then sit down and talk about it. But Tommy wasn't necessarily a rational person and he just decided to never talk about it again. Mm. And he didn't mm. ever. Yeah. And um, tragedy, Tommy Nutter, again, like many of his generation, died mm-hmm. young of AIDS. He was 49, is that, is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. yeah. A slightly sort of bogus question, but, but what is your sense having read everything about him, spoken to so many people about him, what is your sense of what would have happened to him if he had um, stayed around, this amazing combination of extreme creativity and fairly rubbish business sense? Yeah, I mean, I think two things could have happened. Either he would have, uh, he would have you know, continued to, to do what he did, what he was doing when he died, which was you know, have quite a, a substantial um, emporium at the end of Savile uh, and he just would have sort of aged gracefully and continued to make the suits for the people who wanted them and, and um, you know, maybe not ever really built on the, the success that he'd had earlier in his career and then was sort of defined by and never really escaped. Um, or alternatively, he would have found a financial backer who really got what he was able to do and gave him the resources that he really needed to do it and, and sort of didn't hamstring him the way that he was hamstrung uh, repeatedly. And maybe, you know, there's an alternate reality where he became another Paul Smith. But, you know, Paul Smith is, is both a good designer and a very, very smart businessman, and, and Tommy wasn't. So he really would have needed somebody to come along and help him, um, which is a huge what-if, and it's sort of you know, impossible to know, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lance. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Kind of want me a, a zoot suit now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You and me both. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. We will be back in January 2019 with some incredible episodes, so do make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast platform you use. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Vintage Books. House of Nutter by Lance Richardson is waiting in your local bookshop for you. I hope you have a very bookish Christmas, and until next time. (laughs) 